Welcome to the final episode of Results Don't Lie, a legal drama podcast about landmark cases that impact America. We're on the final day of trial in Kuhn v. Walden, a medical malpractice case where back pain patient Brian Kuhn and his wife Michelle are suing Brian's physician, Dr. Henry Walden, and the hospital system he works for because Brian claims he became addicted to prescription opioid drugs. Brian's legal team has already stated their case. Now, the defense called their second expert, Dr. Anthony Guarino, to the stand. Dr. Guarino was introduced to the jury as a nationally recognized lecturer, speaker, and highly respected physician with extensive experience regarding responsible opioid prescribing practices. The defense used the time-honored legal tactic of pitting doctor against doctor. They hoped Dr. Guarino could refute everything the plaintiff's attorney, Dr. Jennison, had claimed about Dr. Walden violating the standard of care by turning Brian into an opioid addict and plant doubt in the minds of the jury. The defense pointed out that there's no mention of Brian being impaired in Dr. Walden's records or in the records of Brian's chiropractor, or from any other medical professional. So was there any indication that Dr. Walden should cut back on the pills? Here's Dr. Gorino's response. So if someone's impaired, that absolutely should stop you and make you reconsider things. But none of that was present in the records to indicate to me that there was a problem with the opioids, albeit high-dose opioids. And so therefore, continuing to prescribe opioids was a reasonable thing to do. The defense asked Dr. Guarino to confirm that there were no federal or state limitations for opioids. So Dr. Walden relied on his best clinical judgment to help his pain-ridden patient. Were the prescription levels reckless, as Dr. Jennison claimed? The records show the doses were increased in time, but they were not increased every time that he was on a set dose for periods of five months to approximately a year. So that this was a slow increase. It wasn't a rapid, uncontrolled, unmonitored increase of medicine. So prescribing thousands of opioid pills was not excessive, as Brian claimed. Excessive would be more than what is needed. And what I look at in determining what was needed is was the goal met and were there problems getting to that goal? The goal being clearly, as I read the records, was Mr. Kuhn wanted to continue to work at a job that is difficult. Brian asked for more opioids over and over again. Should Dr. Walden have seen this as an indication that Brian was addicted? No, claimed Dr. Guarino. He was pseudo-addicted. And this is a phenomenon that we call pseudo-addiction in which something appears that it could be interpreted as addiction, or it could be interpreted that he just wasn't getting enough medicine to address the pain. And my interpretation is that Dr. Walden interprets this call as Mr. Kuhn not getting enough medicine or analgesics to control his pain, and he subsequently adjusted the dose. The thing about pseudo-addiction, we know that increasing a medicine so that a person gets more relief will typically calm down the problem. With this diagnosis of pseudo-addiction, the defense maintained that Dr. Walden acted compassionately and gave Brian the medication he needed without delay because the goal was to keep Brian working and supporting his family. 
And so he decided that this was pseudo-addiction. And he refilled medicines early and or increased medicines when Mr. Kuhn requested. Because of his understanding of who Mr. Kuhn was that's based on a relationship. As well as meeting the goal. The goal was working. And he, in fact, was able to work throughout the time period he was under Dr. Walden's care. And by the defense team's logic, since Brian wasn't addicted, Dr. Walden did the right thing by prescribing more medicine. In fact, claimed Dr. Guarino, Brian couldn't be an addict because he kept going to the chiropractor. So in my experience, an addict is consumed with taking an opioid and really doesn't want to do or think about anything else. And so for someone to then go out and seek chiropractic care... That's just not consistent with what I can appreciate to be addiction. Dr. Guarino provided a powerful defense of Dr. Walden's treatment plan. Now, Tim Cronin stepped up to discredit him in cross-examination. Tim was going to dump all the dirt he and Johnny found on Dr. Guarino in the jury's lap. First, he wanted to defuse the defense's attempt to tarnish Dr. Jennison by implying he was biased because he'd been paid to testify for Brian. And, you know, especially in medical malpractice cases, for lay people, they have to make a decision about what a doctor, it was okay for a doctor to do or not to do. And a lot of times, if it's a doctor being paid by the plaintiff is saying this wasn't okay, a doctor being paid by the defendant is saying it was okay, I think they just kind of throw their hands up and go, well, how are we supposed to judge that? And in this case, Dr. Guarino was really their main liability expert, who was a very qualified guy and a prominent physician, a smart guy, with a good background. Good testifier. A good testifier. I mean, he was coming in and saying, look, everything that was done here was fine. He had real pain. He needed the pills. Pain management is a legitimate type of practice of medicine. And Brian Kuhn didn't overdose. He was able to continue working, which means there weren't serious negative life consequences. By the time there started to be indications of some kind of problem, it was close to the end, and they tried to do something about it, and then he went into rehab. So there's no reason to hold a doctor liable for a money judgment, and that's why it was so important for us to discredit him in every single way possible, I think. The best way I could think of undermining an opioid expert's credibility is by showing his ties with the pharma companies, and that's exactly what we did. Tim pointed out that Dr. Guarino made over $60,000 testifying in this case alone, and well over a million getting paid to testify in his career. He was also on a physician advisory board for Purdue Pharma, the criminally convicted maker of OxyContin for several years, as well as on boards for a number of other opioid manufacturers. And for more than 10 years, Dr. Guarino made over a million dollars giving marketing talks, encouraging other doctors to prescribe more opioids for at least three other pharma companies. Then Tim asked the physician who admitted to making millions working for pharmaceutical companies, do you agree that any physician getting money from the pharmaceutical industry creates a risk of affecting their professional judgment? Yes. Tim moved on to highlight contradictions in what Dr. Guarino was saying in the courtroom and what he wrote in his published works. Tim showed the jury an article written by Dr. Guarino about opioid prescribing protocols, which states that when addicted patients request more medication 
without a specific improvement in condition, a psychological assessment should be made prior to prescribing opioids, including constant reassessment and documentation of the patient for relief and side effects to ensure the patient does not become addicted. But Dr. Walden hadn't done any of these things. Dr. Guarino had to admit that. Then Tim called up medical records from 2011 that showed Dr. Walden did talk to Brian about dependence after being on opioids for three years, and then told Brian to come back in six months. Was this consistent with Dr. Guarino's recommendations? There's nothing in Missouri guidelines stating an exact time period. So whereas I would do things differently, I can't fault Dr. Walden for creating an interval of six months. Dr. Guarino also wrote a book called Get Your Lower Back Pain Under Control and Get On With Life, in which he stated that primary care physicians, like Dr. Walden, should not prescribe opioids and should refer patients to pain management specialists, which Dr. Walden did not do. He also wrote that physicians should always try non-opioid pain meds first, which Dr. Walden did, but only for a week. But Dr. Walden didn't adhere to this plan, and Dr. Guarino had just said his treatment was reasonable. So which way did Dr. Guarino want it? Tim asked if Dr. Guarino stood by his published opinions. I would say, in a general sense. Tim let the jury think about these contradictions and then proceeded. With his extensive knowledge of opioids and their potential for abuse, didn't Dr. Guarino think Brian was exhibiting signs of addiction? That is an interpretation. As I said, it also could be interpreted as pseudo-addiction, tolerance, or an underlying genetic disorder. Tim wasn't going to let Dr. Guarino deflect this question. There was no evidence that Brian had a genetic disorder. Tim tried to debunk the pseudo-addiction theory by asking, don't many physicians disagree that pseudo-addiction is a real phenomenon? Yes, there are individuals who would disagree with the idea of pseudo-addiction. Tim closed with a quick but powerful punch on Dr. Guarino's reputation, bringing up his testimony on behalf of another Missouri physician convicted of Medicaid fraud for overprescribing opioid pills without a legitimate medical purpose. And what was your opinion in that case, Dr. Guarino? The Missouri board said he was a great physician. I concurred with their assessment, and I represented him in federal court. And by the end, the guy had zero credibility. He just added heat to our case, gave us admissions that were great for us, and then helped us tell the story of why something needed to be done to stop this. I couldn't believe they brought him to trial, but, but they did, and it was the most heated part of the case that fired the jury up. Hopefully, this was enough to turn the jury against Dr. Guarino. The defense had one more witness, Dr. Walden. The goal was simple. Show that Dr. Walden was a nice man that he acted responsibly, and that Brian asked for all the opioid pills because his pain kept getting worse due to degenerative disease and tears in his vertebrae. Dr. Walden stated his goal was to manage Brian's back pain so he could keep his job as a medical maintenance worker at the St. Louis Parks Department. Compassionate and thorough, 
Dr. Walden had referred Brian to a spinal surgeon early in his treatment to see if surgery might help. Here's what Dr. Walden said in court. So he saw Mr. Kuhn. He reviewed his medical record. He reviewed the MRIs. And he not only reviews the radiologist's interpretation of the MRI, but he also looks at the films because he has expertise in determining these things. And he found no indication for surgery and felt that a round of physical therapy would be the reasonable next step in addition to his current medications. Anyone could see that Dr. Walden faced a challenging position. Questioned by his own attorney, Dr. Walden explained that long-acting opioid medication seemed to be the only good option for Brian's back pain. And as often happened with opioids, Brian developed a normal and expected tolerance. So Dr. Walden increased the doses of Oxycontin, Oxycodone, and Vicodin when Brian was in pain and prescribed morphine when Brian had withdrawal symptoms if his meds ran out. Dr. Walden claimed neither Brian or Michelle reported any problems, so he continued with the medication, increasing the doses as needed. Yes, it was a lot of pills, but Brian was in a lot of pain, and asking for more meds wasn't necessarily a warning sign of addiction. In fact, Dr. Walden tried to save them money on their prescriptions. So the wife is calling me at this point saying, you know, basically, I'm having to pay a lot more money to get these one-week supplies. Can you write this for me in a full four-week or month supply at the lower dose? It's not entirely clear that this is a warning sign. I think it's a very, sometimes very rational decision by a patient to say, you're making me spend $80 when I could just spend 20 Can I keep my $60 in my pocket? And I'm thinking, well, it makes some sense. And so it's kind of one of those things financially that I'm not trying to to hamper the Coons' financial issues. If they can save $60, I'd like to do that. But the total amount that was written in this one-month supply was decreased so that they were getting lower amounts of the immediate-release oxycodone. Dr. Walden explained that he did try to taper Brian's meds down in 2012, four years into his opioid regimen, and enlisted a pain management physician and psychiatrist to counsel Brian as he went through withdrawals as part of his tapering process. At this time, Brian was receiving 1,500 MMEs of opioids a day. These are incredibly high doses, 15 times the recommended daily amounts. He wasn't losing prescriptions. He wasn't coming in and complaining to me that he'd lost them and he flushed them down the toilet and things like that. He was very responsible, I thought, about trying to get pain relief and trying to manage a very challenging situation with his job and pain. None of the things that I would associate with addiction were really present. I did not think he was addicted to his pain medications. Dr. Walden claimed again that Brian and Michelle never told him Brian was struggling never told him about falling asleep behind the wheel or while smoking on the front porch, never told him about being a zombie or putting a loaded gun in his mouth. So how could Dr. Walden be held responsible for a problem he knew nothing about? At the time Mr. Kuhn and I talked about getting off his medications, there was not an urgent need to do it immediately. And so it was best, I thought, to make sure the whole multidisciplinary team was on board, to make sure he had optimal pain management through our team. 
And I thought that would give him the best opportunity to really successfully come down on his medication. But no, if he had asked for immediate help, uh, that certainly would have been provided. The defense team made sure the jury heard that Dr. Walden was never disciplined by the Missouri State Medical Board or the DEA. The defense painted a powerful picture of Dr. Walden as an upstanding, respected, and caring physician with a clean record who did his best to help his patient. And with his gentle, grandfatherly demeanor, he certainly came across that way in court. The jury took it all in. But the Simon Law Firm was ready for cross-examination. I would say the very first thing we needed to make sure that the jury understood was the extent of this problem, the extent of this societal problem and how bad it had gotten, to put our case into context and to make the jury understand the environment in which this doctor had done what he'd done. The second thing we needed to make sure that the jury understood was the actual real-life consequences that it had on these people. As for the amount that was given, none of that was in dispute, so we weren't worried about that. It was all stipulated to. So I think the most important thing in the case in the middle of those other two was to try to show that this doctor knew or should have known that this had become a really bad problem personally for Mr. Kuhn early on, that he knew he should have stopped. And that's something we hadn't really touched on in discovery and saved it for trial because there were things you could pick out of the medical records, show how fast he escalated him. And then there's calls every once in a while from Brian when he's asking for more pills that it's clear he's saying, I ran out of my pills yesterday. I'm shaking. I'm sweating. I feel sick. I'm nauseous. Those are classic signs that you're withdrawing, which means you have a really bad dependency problem. And th this that's like a month and a half in, and then it's worth the next month, six months into this four and a half years, and this was, I think, explosive, was there was a record where Brian calls in and he ran out of his pills a day or two early, and it, which means he's admitting that I'm taking them not as prescribed and taking them too quick. And the note in the doctor's own record, in all caps with an exclamation point, says, needs help needs help and the next line in the record is refill prescription at like an increased dose yeah refill authorized pick up room 207 and i think the most important thing for us to show that we need to make sure we needed the jury to agree with us on was this doctor knew he had a problem and he just turned a blind eye to it johnny's father john simon stepped in to handle dr walden's cross-examination he wanted to show that Dr. Walden was in over his head with this patient and just wanted to take the easy way out by writing prescriptions rather than dealing with the difficult problem of addiction. Essentially, Dr. Walden didn't seem to know what he had given to his patient. It wasn't well documented in his records. He didn't seem to know the amounts he was given and was kind of surprised when we confronted him with it. It was going to be impossible to question about it without really knowing amounts. So our office put together a comprehensive chart from the pharmacy records because we had all the pharmacy records from everywhere he'd gotten picked up the prescriptions from to be able to know every script that he'd ever picked up, that Dr. Walden had written, and then calculate amounts so we knew how much he'd been given at any given time and the averages per year. And when Dr. Walden was confronted with those, I think it, it kind of freaked him out. But he still didn't think he did anything wrong. He said, look, the guy needed these pills to go to work. 
the doses were massive. The chart showed Dr. Walden prescribed 10,164 opioid narcotic pills to Brian Kuhn in 2012. And when Dr. Walden started to taper the drugs, Brian was still prescribed 2,188 opioid narcotic pills. That could be correct. I don't count the total number of pills that someone takes in a year's time. John Simon pointed out that the hospital wasn't watching Brian Kuhn's prescriptions either. Another point was the hospital. You know, the hospital was allowing this to happen, operating in a system, and his employer, you know, kind of what system, medication system, management system was in place to prevent this kind of prescribing. Pay attention to how much of these drugs their doctors were prescribing or how much was getting prescribed to a particular patient. And the answer to that question of what monitoring did you do was what, Johnny? Zero. None. It was none. They had done none. I mean, I didn't know before this case that Missouri was the only state without a prescription pill monitoring program, which, by the way, is still true. Still true. They still don't have a prescription pill monitoring program. And, I mean, there's lobbying by the major healthcare providers to prevent it from happening because of liability in civil lawsuits. And that is insane to me. John Simon also pointed out that there were only two notes in four and a half years of medical records that indicated Dr. Walden talked to Brian about risks. The doctor claimed they talked about it a lot, even though he didn't write down every detail of every visit. I think I went way above the, the, the norm in talking about this with Mr. Kuhn because I made sure that he understood the risks and benefits. And we talked about this over and over and over and over again in our office visits and our telephone calls. Brian's team wanted Dr. Walden to admit that even though he was prescribing morphine to reduce withdrawal symptoms when Brian ran out of his medication before he was due for a refill, which is a classic indication of addiction, Dr. Walden refused to believe Brian was addicted. Addiction and opioid dependency are not synonymous. Mr. Kuhn had physical dependence on his opioid. His physical dependence meant that if he failed to keep on to his tapered dose that I prescribed, that he would, in fact, go into withdrawal. He knew that. I knew that. The reason he's in detox in September is because he did not manage the taper, as we had discussed and planned, and he ran out of his medications. All those medications were listed in Brian's pharmacy records, records that were turned over years ago in the discovery phase and analyzed by Brian's legal team. Every question posed in deposition, every question and graph prepared for trial, was based upon the information reported in those pharmacy records. But the weekend before Dr. Walden went on the stand, Brian's team made an incredible discovery and realized why the defense had been claiming all along that Dr. Walden thought everything was fine. Remember, their defense was none of this was reported to Dr. Walden, we didn't see it. It's not in the medical records. No problems. We didn't know about any problems. No, no problem. If we would have known about it, we would have done something. So we did a little bit of digging. It was Johnny's dad, John, who was trying the case with us, and he was going to put Dr. Walden on. And he just started meticulously going through the records, and he had the prescription chart sitting next to him that we got from the pharmaceutical records, 
And so he went to go check in the records, where's this morphine prescript? What did he write to justify that? And it wasn't there. There was like four times it happened. He looked for the next one, and it wasn't there. And he looked for the third one, and it wasn't there. And then he starts looking at scripts around him, and he's like, I don't see these in here either. And federal law requires that for a Schedule II narcotic, um, a protracted drug like that, it has to be documented in the records. And so he got a group of law clerks and said, go through every page of these medical records and compare them to our chart, which is from the pharmacy records, and let me know how many scripts you find that aren't in there. And then highlight on our chart. Our chart was like 12 pages long, listing every script that was ever filled for Brian from the various pharmacies for opioids. Highlight the ones that aren't in this doctor's medical records. And it ended up being like half of them weren't in his own medical records. And they did not see it coming because they had only looked at the pharmacy records just like us. And so... John sprung it on the defendant doctor while he was on the stand as the last witness in the case and just had him do it the same way he figured it out. Said, you prescribed morphine a few times to hold him over between prescriptions, yeah, and then just dropped the 1,500 pages of medical records in front of him on the stand and said, find that in your records. It's in date order? It's in date order, and the doctor couldn't find it. And he had him look for the next one, and he couldn't find it. And then John said, you know, we figured that out too. And we went through and found every one that's in the pharmacy records that's not in your records. After the doctor had already admitted not documenting him in his records of federal crime. Where are the records, doctor? The physician is on the stand and he's saying, I know they're in there, I know they're in there. Then if they're not in there, what does that mean, doctor? And Dr. Walden points to his lawyers and said that, that must not be all of the records. They're in the electronic records. Uh, you must not have all the electronic records. And what we came to find out was there was a you know a sidebar. We approached the bench, and there were medical records, pieces of paper from the medical records that were not turned over. To I mean, us. dozens and dozens of prescriptions, maybe up to a hundred, that they hadn't given to us, and it had encounter information where we still don't have those records to this day. You've never seen them. Who knows what Brian and his wife had been reporting to the doctor when their whole defense was we didn't know he didn't tell us. These missing records could have contained not only prescription information, but more importantly, doctor-patient encounter information. Brian could have been telling Dr. Walden all along that he was addicted and needed help, as Tim and Johnny claimed. Or they could show that Brian never said a word, as the defense maintained. But without these records, we will never know. Yeah, that half your prescriptions aren't in your records. Where are those records? And then he goes, there must be electronic medical records. I definitely documented them in the electronic medical records. They're all in there because it would be a crime, and I would never do that. There must be electronic medical records where they all are that you didn't get. And that was the last thing the jury heard. The defense was based on this is what is and isn't in the records. We couldn't have known there was a problem. There's hundreds and hundreds of pages, scripts with encounters with the patient where the patient could be saying all kinds of things about what was going on that were never given to us. It was devastating. I think it was the, it was the most devastating thing that happened uh, and powerful thing that happened in front of the jury, and they didn't know how to deal with it. And so we thought that the defendant's pleading should be straight. We thought that they should be sanctioned in the form of, you know, strike their pleadings. We win on liability and just submit the issue of damages to the jury. 
Sanctions are the highest form of penalty a court can impose for being untruthful or committing discovery violations, and they're quite rare. Brian's team was asking the judge to impose a severe penalty for not providing these medical records. Throw out all the defense arguments, stop the trial, and rule in Brian's favor, and let the jury decide how much the defendant should pay. The judge did not sanction the defense, but the damage to their case was done. It undercut their entire defense. There's no indication from the records of the plaintiff saying there was a problem with these medications. You're arguing that there's a lack of information in the records, and you know we've effectively shown that you didn't turn over a huge amount of the records for our consideration. Jury's not going to treat you too well when you do that. Right. And if what was, I mean, it was from exactly the time frame when these doses really got out of control. And if what was already in the records was bad, I mean, we argued, imagine how much worse the contents of the records must have been that we didn't get. And I kind of felt like that was the final nail in the coffin where the jury just stopped listening. The testimony was over. The defense and plaintiffs gave their closing arguments, their last appeal before the jury left the courtroom to deliberate. I gave closing argument in that case. That's probably the most satisfying thing that I've done in my career because I was talking about not just helping my client, whose family got destroyed by this, uh, but making sure no other families got destroyed by it. And sometimes a jury has an opportunity to make an actual difference, and I wanted to convey to them that they had that opportunity and they shouldn't lose sight of it, and I think we accomplished that. My closing argument was, look, You've heard all the stats about the problems that prescribing of these opioids for chronic pain when they shouldn't be prescribed has caused. You've heard exactly what they did in this case. You've heard exactly about how it affected this family. This destroys lives. It destroyed this family's lives. This destroys families, and that's what you've seen here. This is a microcosm of what this problem is. They shouldn't need to be another statistic that's on in, in the death statistics for something to be done about it. And now it, this is your opportunity to, the next time you look in the mirror and you think about whether you ever had an opportunity to do something about this problem in this country, in your community, in your society, I want you to be proud and be able to say that you did what you could. And you need to do what you can to put a stop to it. Obviously, you can't put a complete stop to it, but this is your opportunity to, to do something important and make a difference. And I'll leave it in your, in your hands to do what you want with that opportunity. And the other side's closing argument really was, they're talking about a problem that doesn't exist here. All this opioid epidemic problem and these statistics, that's somewhere else, that's not here. And uh, he asked for the pills, he got the pills, he never told our doctor that he was addicted or he had these problems and he is off of the pills now and there were like there's no damages in this case and I mean frankly they called the case ridiculous in closing argument and I thought that was a big mistake because the jury had seen that it clearly was not ridiculous the jury was instructed to follow Missouri law which states that if you rule for the plaintiff, you must compensate that plaintiff justly and fairly. And you, the jury, also have the power to punish and deter this behavior with a large 
punitive damages award. I was trying to explain to the jury the crude system we have that is money and how you have to try to figure out the right compensation for something. And it was, ladies and gentlemen, this is the only system we have. We wish we had a different one. We wish we had a system where you could come out and write down on a piece of paper some magic words where Brian and Michelle go back in time four and a half years or they're able to get back to that place they were four and a half years ago and they stand up, they give each other a kiss, they hold hands, and they walk out of that courtroom door together happy and go pick up their little girl and their life is what it should have been. And they couldn't do that. So we wish we were able to do that for them too, but we couldn't. We have a system of justice, and justice in the form of a monetary allotment. And what we we work to do is to balance the harms and losses. We look at what the client has has harmed, and we ask the jury, using their voice in the form of monetary compensation, to balance the harms and losses, balance the balance the scales. The Coons had waited years to tell their story. Now, they had to wait a little longer to learn if anyone was listening. How long did it take for the deliberations? Were they quick? They deliberated for two and a half, three hours. And we figured out that all they were talking about was how much, how much fault to give to Brian. And uh, they came back with assigning two-thirds fault to the defendants and one-third fault to Brian for, for causing, uh, contributing to cause you know his addiction and what he went through which was in line with what we had found from the focus groups that we'd done. And then awarding Brian, I think, uh, $1.4 million in compensatory damages, pain and suffering, past and future. Awarding Michelle, I think, $1.2 million in compensatory damages, past and future. And awarding $15 million in, in, in punitive damages. And uh, the punitive damages, you know, I felt they were well warranted. Those are... Those are not to compensate a plaintiff. Those are to punish a defendant for their conduct and to deter the defendant in the case and others, meaning everybody in the medical profession who can prescribe opioids to deter this kind of thing in the future, which is why you know our argument in close was ring a bell from coast to coast saying this stops here. It's time to do something about this. And Michelle was awarded about the same amount in compensatory damages as Brian was. And I think the reason was Michelle went through everything Brian did, but she went through it all with sober eyes. I wanted them to feel like some semblance of justice had happened. And they would any day of the week get all give all that money back and take what I had told the jury I wish they could do. But it, it made them at least feel like they helped this from happening to other people and some semblance of justice had had happened and so we were very proud that they felt that way i mean as soon as the trial was over we walked out into the other room and brian michelle gave us all hugs while they were crying and so that's always really satisfying if you feel like your clients are grateful for what you did for them then it makes you feel good like you did your job the coons and the simon law firm were satisfied and relieved but dr walden's legal team did not accept the verdict and appealed the decision the Coons would have to wait again. Appeals like this go to a higher court called the appellate court. Appellate courts do not retry cases, hear witnesses, or examine evidence. 
They review the procedures and decisions made in trial court to be sure the proceedings were fair and that the proper law was applied correctly. Dr. Walden's defense team demanded a mistrial, claiming discussion of the national opioid epidemic was irrelevant, confusing, and prejudicial to the jury, and that Judge Noble should not have allowed it to come into the trial. They also claimed that the words reckless and excessive in Dr. Jennison's testimony about Dr. Walden's prescribing practices did not stand up to Missouri's medical malpractice benchmark of willful, wanton, or malicious behavior, and therefore, the $15 million punitive damage award should be thrown out. Think about this. $15 million could be erased by these three words, which highlights the importance of Tim and Johnny knowing the intricacies of the statute and citing other cases where similar phrases like complete indifference and conscious disregard had been accepted as the legal equivalent. A three-judge panel in the Missouri Court of Appeals for the Eastern District reviewed a transcript of the trial. Their opinion on the case was clear and decisive. In March 2017, the appellate court found the trial evidence shows that, quote, Dr. Walden knew or had information from which he should have known that there was a high probability that prescribing Brian Kuhn these amounts of opioids for this length of time would result in injury, end quote. Judge Robert Dowd wrote, Dr. Walden's decision to prescribe these amounts for this length of time was done in conscious disregard of, and with complete indifference to, Brian Kuhn's safety and the safety of others. We find this to be tantamount to intentional wrongdoing. Plaintiffs made a submissible case of punitive damages against Dr. Walden. The appellate court affirmed the judgment. The Kuhns had won. My proudest moment was when it got upheld on appeal, right? The verdict was excellent and the result record setting. But until it was upheld on appeal, it was a question of whether we were gonna do it all again. What happens at trial is the truth, right? The facts come out at trial and there's a dispute. The jury obviously found our facts that we presented true, but then there was a question of whether the appellate court was gonna take it all away and say none of that mattered or you didn't do this right. It's a appellate opinion affirming that that happened, that that is the fact that's true. It happened. Case closed, right? I, I really felt good about that. I was proud about that because that is the truth. That is the truth about what happened. No one should be able to spin it any other way. And it's in writing and it's there and it, it is the law of Missouri. So I, I was really proud of that. Coon v. Walden changed the way our medical system works in regards to opioids, citing that the hospital system had negligent supervision and indifference to the safety of its patients because no monitoring standards for these highly addictive substances were in place. The appellate court ruled that the standard of care required providers to conduct a risk assessment with a patient before prescribing opioids 
and that doctors may only prescribe opioids if the pain is not adequately relieved by alternative non-narcotic treatment first. And the record-setting $15 million punitive damage penalty was hard for any hospital system in the country to ignore. This verdict got out there and it started changing policies and procedures at major organizational healthcare providers. We, I mean, we've seen it in subsequent cases that this case resulted in new policies and procedures, more rigorous training for doctors about before they can even start prescribing them, going through a training program. And every time they start prescribing them to a patient that there's a series of things they have to click through that reminds them of things they need to look out for and you better be careful before you do this because most prescribing happens electronically now. And so there are things built into those electronic systems to kind of remind doctors like, hey, you're going to have to click through this stuff that's going to be noted in the record acknowledging these risks. And then there have been a, a good number of continuing uh, education classes, which which all professionals go through, including doctors, as they should. They have to stay up to date with medicine, where this verdict is being taught at seminars and was extensively around the country to really open people's eyes. Not not just to make them scared, but to say, hey, this is a thing that you, that you can't do. You can be held accountable. I mean, overprescribing is still going on, but I think it has really helped to curb it a great deal. Doctors going around giving talks about what happened to Mr. They should talk about it. I want them to talk, but that's why we did it. That's a precedent that, regardless of the law, the legal precedent set, I mean, the impact on the medical profession, I think, is the thing that really is going to make a positive change. Kuhn v. Walden changed Missouri law. Healthcare providers now knew they could be held accountable in a major way for prescribing high levels of opioids. This case definitely did set the precedent, not only in establishing the law in the state of Missouri and probably influencing what will be in other states for these kinds of cases, that you can sue doctors for this and there are damages even if somebody didn't overdose for it. It put it on the radar for the legal profession all over the country that this is a type of case that can be pursued and is a way to get justice and compensation for clients that have been through this when it wasn't really being looked at as something that was possible. And so it it set a precedent that other lawyers should start looking into these cases and, and trying to do something about this problem in their states as well, and other lawyers in Missouri. But what did Kuhn v. Walden do for Brian and Michelle Kuhn? They really did it for the right reasons. Going through that together, on that journey together, and still sticking to it, and not infighting, and what they agreed on was this needs to be punished, right? That someone needs to do something about this. That's what they agreed on, right? And uh, I, I think it was a really brave, a brave thing to do because they, they were going to be and were called, you know, horrible things and had to relive that whole time over and over and over again as we prepared for trial. I mean, people don't like to think about that stuff. Nobody's going to think they didn't get a significant amount of money. They did. But their award at the same time, which they knew even if they won, was going to happen was this is going to be on the news and in the newspaper. And everybody we know, all of our friends and family, are going to see that Brian was a drug addict 
And that was just, just out there. And it, every single person Brian and Michelle know, they now know that, all of that. All of those details that came out about him. And it's incredibly embarrassing. And so Johnny's right. It was brave because it's not just brave to, to stand up and tell the story, but to know that everybody's going to know it. Not just the people that were in the courtroom. And they still live with that. But Brian and Michelle could not put their marriage back together. And they divorced. Brian stayed off opioids through four back surgeries and is trying to rebuild his relationship with his daughter and his trust in himself. He did have one victory, though. He changed the system, and his fight would prevent others from enduring his ordeal. The opioid epidemic still rages in America. Thousands are still dying. Pharmaceutical companies have finally been held accountable. In October 2020, Purdue Pharma, creator and marketer of OxyContin, paid $8 billion in criminal and civil damages, and the company was dissolved. Other cases are pending, but Kuhn v. Walden was the first to hold a physician accountable and obtain damages for a patient. Because of its chilling effect, many hospitals and physicians have severely curtailed their opioid prescribing practices. Because, as Tim said in trial, if a patient never receives an opioid prescription, they won't become a prescription opioid addict. Kuhn v. Walden may very well have made an impact upon you, and you may not even know it. Your own doctor may have reconsidered how he treated you or a family member for pain because of this case. I think the message that it sent was, uh, doctors, it's time for you to do your part in putting a stop to this because there's consequences. Unfortunately, you know, without consequences, people will do a lot of reckless, dangerous stuff. They need to know there are consequences. And... uh, this verdict, I think, shouted out from the rooftops that there were consequences. You can't just say the pharmaceutical companies told us it was safe. You need to know better and you need to do something about it. Because if you're flooding them out there too, you're part of the problem and you're going to be, you're going to be responsible for uh, the harm that it causes and the solution as much as they are. In Kuhn v. Walden, the court system did level the playing field. A family of modest means was able to take on a hospital system, have their story heard, and receive justice. And our country's medical system is safer because the team at the Simon Law Firm fought in Kuhn v. Walden, not just for the Kuhns, but for all of us. I think one of the messages is, is if you're out there, you know, we are listening, right? The civil justice system will listen to you. The doctors might not, your family might not, we are going to listen to you. And if you want your story heard, we're willing to tell it, you know, and we can't, you know, promise any outcomes, but if you want to do something about it, there's some retribution to be had. It's not this, we're going to, you know, forgive and forget and move on. There's got to be consequences. There has to be. Otherwise, that's not, that's not justice. And the far reaching impact that these cases can have is not just affect the outcome in one person's life, but really save countless others from suffering the same wrong that 
you know, your clients suffer. You'll never know the names of those people who are saved by these policy changes, but they are out there, and they are benefiting from the action that you're taking on behalf of yourself. Given that it was one of the first cases in this office that I ever saw get actually, like, get tried and, and worked up and, you know, the power of the civil justice system to actually make a change, you know, and it's real. It's a real power, and it has real teeth behind it, and I think that is a wonderful use of uh, our civil justice system. I think it's why it's there. I look forward in every case to, you know, trying to make the same impact that we did in the Coon case. I view it as a privilege and an obligation that I can try to make changes for the better for our society. Now, the number one goal is to accomplish whatever we can for our client and meet our client's goals. But oftentimes our client's goals are to be a part of making a difference in a bigger way for other people and that they're less concerned about getting money from themselves as they are about making sure it doesn't happen to somebody else. And I would say that that probably is what drove me most to wanting to do the kind of work that we do here, which is plaintiff largely catastrophic personal injury and death, is the opportunity to try to uncover wrongdoing and make a difference, and we're in a unique position to be able to do it. And we're lucky enough here to have very good cases on very important issues to have the opportunity to do so. Results Don't Lie is a true story podcast from the Simon Law Firm. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.